This morning, we are going to be in chapter 9. So if you open your Bibles to chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 1 to 18. This will be part 1. And if you look at your sheet this morning, topic is going to be proper use of liberty. You're going to see that sounds very familiar. It's going to be a, a topic that's going to kind of continue for a while. Um, and the general objective this morning is going to be that love triumphs over freedom. The specific objective this morning is going to be that the good servant must be willing to forfeit his freedoms for the purpose of love. And my thesis for this morning is going to be, be the example for people to follow. In other words, you, me, let us be the example for people to follow. Think of what Paul said. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is the calling that all of us should be able to say that. Right? And uh, the outline here, you have an outline. Number one is going to be verses one and two, the qualification of the servant. Number two, the appeal to common sense, verses three to seven, and the Old Testament law, verses eight to 14. And then number three, the priority of the greater in verses 15 to 18. All right? So, If you guys just join me, I'm going to read the first 18 verses, then we will pray, and then we will get started. Alright? Let's go. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, 
I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we need you so desperately this morning to help us, Lord God, to have eyes that see, Lord God, to have a mind that is free from distractions of this world, this life, our circumstances, whatever it may be, Lord God. We come here now this Sunday morning because we want to be refueled. We want to together as one body, as one voice, Lord God, we want to praise you, we want to uplift your holy name, and we want to hear from your perfect, holy, wonderful voice through your perfect holy, wonderful, and infallible words. So I pray, Father, again, that you would help us this morning. And I thank you that we're not praying to the, to the air or to a wall who cannot hear. We are praying to the living God, and we know you hear us, and we know we have your Spirit, and we know you will help us. So we thank you in advance for all that you do. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. So, chapter 8. Last week, Pastor John did chapter 8 and it began a new section of thought. One of the great things about becoming a Christian is the fact that we are what in Christ? What word am I looking for? Redeemed. We are redeemed. Think about what we went through last week. We are what in Christ? Free in Christ, Right? We hear this all the time, and if we are free, the Scripture says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed, right? Amen. That's a wonderful thing. But what does that actually mean? Well, it actually means several things, right? And we don't want to take things out of context. First, we are free, first and foremost, from the bondage of sin that was a horrible master over us, right? We are free in Christ. Sin is no longer... It does not dictate every single thing that we do, right? So praise God that we are free in that sense. And then secondly, and it's really more where we're at in this passage and where we've been at last week, we are free in the sense that we have a liberty to partake in things that are harmless in and of themselves, right? That we have, we're free in matters of conscience, right? As far as being able to do things that aren't sinful, of course, but that, you know, that are somewhat okay, Right? But as we have seen last week, and as we're going to continue to see, that even though we are free, and that we have certain rights in Christ, great harm can still be done when we use these freedoms, or we don't have a, we don't rightly apply this liberty that we have in Christ. So again, last week, Pastor John went over chapter 8, and if I can sum up that chapter, it would be something like this, that... Loving our weaker brother or sister is so much more important than partaking in things that we would under normal circumstances be free to do, but in certain contexts like that, like them with the Corinthian church, where that freedom would cause our brother or sister to stumble and essentially stumble in sin, right? Then we ought to be eager to give that up completely, right? The last verse, I believe, in chapter 8 really says it all. Verse chapter 8, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Dom, you want to read that? I have all those sheets right there if you have. Oh, you're reading. Go ahead. Uh, Lenny, you want to read it? Therefore, food causes my brother to stumble. I will never eat again. I will not cause my Ironic, right? Perfect. Beautiful. But I love that. If food causes my brother to stumble, right? 
and what we food that I am free to eat that there's nothing wrong with me eating this right and he could have used other examples here he's just using food he says I will never eat meat again what is that saying because I love my brother I love my sister I care about them for whom Christ has died as we'll see right but chapter 9 is kind of an interesting chapter because it's a chapter that people will go to defend another concept. The concept that churches should pay and provide for their pastors because of the work that they do. It's one of those go-to chapters. And it certainly is, if there was a topical thing, if there was some kind of a topical, you went to a conference, went to the conference and there was a topic on that, they certainly would go here and it would be justified. Okay? But as much as that is true, as we're going to see, it's not actually the heart of the teaching in this section. So for us to understand this text properly, we must realize that it is still part of the section that just began in chapter 8, and it's going to continue all the way to the end of chapter 10. So what Paul is going to do in this next section is point out, point to the example that he and Barnabas gave. So in a real sense, really, this whole passage this morning acts as an illustration for what was just spoken of last week, right? In the preceding chapter. Remember again what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in this section, Paul is going to show us how he had every right to receive compensation for his work of service, and among other things, how he was also free to have other privileges as well, but that under certain circumstances, and especially in the particular context that he had with the Corinthian church, he chose to forfeit those freedoms, those entitlements, for the furtherance of the gospel, right? So his priority, again, was always love of the brethren, which stemmed from his love of the Lord. I would say that Paul was also very prudent. In other words, he was always looking to see how his actions might affect the future, right? We should care about what the... We can't dictate the future, right? But God does give us some light that, you know, we do these things and... Most of the time it's going to be like this, right? He gives us, he gives us wisdom. But he gives us knowledge and we should certainly rightly apply that knowledge. So in this passage alone, Paul's going to ask 17 questions which are generally all rhetorical for the purpose of getting them to think. Because he wants them to understand. And this is just so extremely important because I don't want to get ahead of myself. But last week, there was ones that really thought they had understanding. And I'm going to say, I don't think they did have understanding. They might have had some knowledge, but they didn't have understanding. So let's look at this. Let's look at first the qualification of the sermon. I probably could have got a better heading for that, but just bear with me. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So as in any other Christian, Paul is reminding this church that he is free just like the rest. There's no difference for him. There is no exception for Paul or any of the other apostles for that matter. Right? 
If you go back real quick and just get off Paul and think of Peter for a second, we know that Peter was an apostle and he was even given the role of being the leader. You know, theologians would call it the first amongst equals, right? And that was what Peter did. And, and being in that position put him in the spotlight, we can say, more than maybe the rest. And he was put in that p- a position of accountability, right? And remember his vision in the book of Acts, right? He had his visions. He was put in a trance and pretty much like a big, huge, massive tablecloth came down with all things that, the, according to the ceremonial law, a Jew was forbidden to eat. And his whole time when he was with Christ, all that stuff was followed still because Jesus had to obey the whole law, being a Jew, right? And essentially, he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that was unholy or unclean. And God said, what I have made clean, don't call uncommon. Or common. Right? And the idea, he was going to go meet Cornelius, a Gentile. And if you understand the whole narrative, okay, is that this ceremonial law, which had to do specifically of the Jew, Christ fulfilled all that. It is no more. It's no longer about that anymore. You are free to do this. And ever since that, once he got that, he said, wow, then God has granted the Gentiles also repentance unto life. And then as time went on, it's understood that Peter, because he did minister to the Gentiles in the beginning before Paul came on the scene. We know that Peter was the, the apostle to the Jew and Paul was the apostle to the Gentile. But Peter, and I think it's understood that the rest of the apostles didn't care about that anymore. In other words, they knew that it was no more the ceremonial law. And as time went by, Peter lived that way. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, if you remember, Paul had to call him out to his face. He said, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, in the presence of them all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, in other words, you eat with them, you do the same things that they would do, including what they eat, because God showed you this in the trance, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? He was playing a hypocrite. He said, no more of this. Okay? So, he was free. And now he's living as if he wasn't free. Not good. So because there were people in Corinth that were denying Paul's apostleship, he had to remind them of who he was. He hated to do this. He had to do this on a number of occasions. But he, and he hated to do this, but it was necessary in the particular context. And being an apostle did not remove him, just like it didn't remove Peter, from enjoying the same benefits that are given to all Christians. That would include eating some good old-fashioned pork when they weren't allowed to do that, right? And certainly he and the rest of the apostles were held to a higher standard, but all that comes with Christ is given to all that are in Christ. There's no exceptions. Again, because there were those who questioned the authenticity of his apostleship, he reminded them of his eyewitness in seeing the resurrected Christ. This was, we know, a prerequisite. I have to say that word slowly because I would say prerequisite because I can't do my R's for being an apostle. So Paul only knew the resurrected Christ. First, we know at his conversion, right, when he was on the road to Damascus. Second, and this is overlooked, and we'll look at these verses, being taught by the Lord himself in Arabia. And then third, being taken up into the third heaven. 
And he wasn't able to speak of the things that he saw when he was taken up there. So Acts chapter 9, we know this is, I believe what Ananias says, but the Lord said to him in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 16, all these verses again are on those sheets if you guys want to look at it. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, talking about Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Then we go to Galatians chapter 1. And this is where we hear, that, uh, where we hear of that him being, being taught in Arabia. In Galatians 1 verse 11 to 24 it says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like the rest of the apostles. In other words, Paul didn't get saved through the ministry of one of the apostles or any other person that witnessed to him. As a matter of fact, he killed them. He tried to kill them. He hated them. He hated Christ. He was taught directly by the Lord. He goes on to say, verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So Paul was, in fact, a true apostle. He was an apostle, handpicked by the Lord, taught by the Lord. And then he calls them to look to themselves as believers. Look to yourselves, Corinthian church. The very fruit of his apostolic work. And even though there were those in Corinth who undermined and even rejected his authority, remember going back to chapter 1, it was a divided church, right? Some were of Peter, some of Apollo, some of Paul. They were divided. He still reminds them that they, of all people, had no grounds for this because they were the product of His work in the Lord. They would not exist as a church if God did not use Paul in their lives. Could God have used another person? Of course. But the instrument who God used to make a church in Corinth was the Apostle Paul, first and foremost. And this is expressed in the phrase, for you are the seal of of my apostleship. That is the undeniable evidence of his apostolic work. And I think maybe kind of like an illustration to this, I was trying to think of something. You know, my dad was an artist, right? I know my dad's work. Though there's many, there's different types of art, right? 
I can sit there and say, that's the product of Rick Sabato when I see it. All right? You know what? I, I have, there's, there's three ladies in this room that make lasagna. Right? I got my sister's lasagna, my wife's lasagna, and Sharon's lasagna. <laughs> it's all lasagna. But I know which one who made it. I can almost guarantee you that. Right? They all have their own little twist to it, right? So how can we, how can we apply this? Paul says that the church at Corinth was the seal of his apostleship. They were the evidence of his labor of love and obedience to his master. And we know that none of us have the calling of an apostle because they're no more, right? But we all have a calling from God. We talk about that all the time. Everyone in this room has a calling from God. And in one sense, in one sense, it is the same. In one sense, it is the same. And that we are all to be those who love God and love people. We are all called to do justly. That means do what is right. To love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We are all called to keep our minds stayed on Him. Right? And what's the fruit of that? He will keep you in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on Him? That would be the fruit that we're in perfect peace. But can we say, or others say, that we have a seal, kind of like Paul did with the Corinthian church, is there undeniable evidence of our faithfulness? There should be. Is there fruit that is evidence? And I'm not saying fruit to try to prove that we are that. In other words, though that in one sense that might be true, I'm not saying that person has no fruit, he must not be saved. We don't have that right to say that. Okay? We don't have a right to say that. I'm saying, is there evidence of our faithfulness? Because there should be. In Acts 20, uh, 26, verse 19 to 20, Paul is giving his defense to King Agrippa. He goes through pretty much the whole testimony. Right? And he goes on to say, God called him. Right? He called him starting with, on his road to Damascus. And he says this in verse 19, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. He acted, Right? but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about half the New Testament written to churches that he founded or ministered in. Right? And he went there and he served with all his heart. He got saved and he served. And people got saved. But I want to really pay attention to that last phrase here. That he preached to those that they, would, that they should repent and turn to God. Have a change of mind about God. Get saved. And now that they're saved, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So now that we are saved, we ought to live a life that is appropriate with this wonderful thing that just happened to us, right? And there's so many different ways to show this. And I'm not going to sit there because I'm going to have you guys just think about that because I had to think about it. I still have to think about it. Is there fruit? Is there undeniable evidence? Are we walking worthy of this great, wonderful calling that God has given us? 
Then next, number two, the appeal to common sense and the Old Testament law. Let's look at common sense first, verses 3 to 7. He says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So here, in Paul's example concerning himself, he first chooses again to defend himself against those who opposed him. And I'm going to say that this defense is twofold. Twofold. First, to those who may have called him hypocritical. Keep in mind what we just learned in chapter 8. And second, to those who thought he was not a true apostle. So let's look first to those who may have called him hypocritical. Paul, we know, was one who knew that an idol was nothing. And that meat did not make him or anyone else for that matter more commendable to God. You want more holy if you eat or unholy if you didn't eat. Right? And yet he chose to refrain in certain contexts because it would have been the right thing to do. Now for us to understand this, we must go back again to chapter 8. Chapter 8, think last week. Chapter 8 addresses, now I know there's going to be more than one right answer here, but see where I'm going. Remember, go back to last week. There's two kinds of people in the church. And I'm going to say these two kinds of people with an asterisk. What kinds of people in the church? Say it, Gabe. It's a handsome man, isn't he? It's a handsome man. Weak and strong, right? Weak and strong Christians. So why am I saying this? I do not believe, first of all, that's why I said the asterisk, I do not believe that this strength and weakness has to do with their walk of obedience. Not at all, Right? I think in the context that he's talking about strength and weakness in matters of knowledge and conscience. So as far as knowledge is concerned, is knowledge good? Good. Knowledge is good, right? We need to understand, knowledge is good. But as far as knowledge is concerned, Paul, in every way, remember our letter was written asking these questions, whether it was probably written by the elders, hey, this is what's going on in my church, can you help us, Right? So as far as knowledge is concerned, Paul in every way goes out of his way and agrees with the strong Christian in regards to their understanding of meat, sacrifice to idols, and eating. Right? Chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Matteo, you want to read that? in the world, and that there is no good but one, for even if there is so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is, is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things in the world, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by 
Okay. So we see here, looking at these verses, Paul's in agreement with these strong people. Yes, there's no such thing as an idol. There's no God but one, even if there are little g-gods, little g-lords, right? But for us, there's only one. Yet in chapter 8, if you look at the chapter, if you look at the beginning verses in the end, the rebuke is not to the weak Christian who didn't understand or didn't have that knowledge, but rather to the so-called strong who may be strong in their knowledge and conscience, but were clearly, I'm going to say, without understanding. You think of the title of uh, John's message last week is Okay Smart Guy, right? Okay Smart Guy, right? In other words, he said, you know something's coming when you hear that phrase. Usually, no, you moron. You think you're smart, right? Not the same thing. That's my, my way of saying it. So if they understood rightly, what have I said? I've said this multiple times. Here's knowledge. God's knowledge that He's given us. How many ways to responding to that are there? How many ways, possible ways of responding? I'm looking for a number. Either two or three. Okay. Let's go with the first one. All right. You can tell me the third one on the side. <laughs> well, you could, yeah. you could no. actually go against it or you could act like you're just, I don't pick a side. But that is okay, I got you, I got you. I'm going to go with two. Yes. Foolishness. Okay. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above shows the work of His hands. There is no God. Foolishness. The fool says in his own heart, there is no God. Right? Or wisdom. God told me to do this. I have knowledge of it. It's very clear. What am I going to do? Do it. Right? That's, that's why. That's understanding. The one who does it, he who knows to do good and, do, he who knows to do good and does not do it to him it is sin because he does not rightly apply the knowledge that was given to him. So his rebuke is to the strong, not the weak. And if they understood rightly, they would have responded in wisdom rather than foolishness. As a matter of fact, Paul doesn't rebuke the weaker Christian at all. If anything, I would say he comes to their defense first of all. I would even say this. There might be a reason in that period or that timing in the Christian's life that God has them weak in that area. Did you ever think of that? Think about something a second. Here, you have that weaker Christian, and I understand you have to be careful what I'm saying too, because it ends at some point. But they're not doing something because they believe that it's right before their God. I have to think that there's a little honor in there. He doesn't go out of his way to rebuke them at all, but he comes to their defense. Look what he says again now in chapter 8, verse 11 to 12. And this is, this is so important. It says, For through your knowledge, smart guy, he who is weak, your brother, is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. I mean, look at these words. Ruined. That's a strong word. Brother. Brother. A sibling who Christ died for, suffered, bled, died. The Father turned His back on Him. And it pleased Him for you. And so by sinning against the brethren 
and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. His second defense now is going to be to those who thought he was not a true apostle. And the way he's going to do this is by showing them what every apostle had a right to, including all future pastors. And the first was to eat and drink. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Is he talking about eating and drinking in and of itself? What do you think he's getting at here? He's not talking about eating and drinking. Everyone has to eat and drink to survive. It's eating and drinking at the expense of whoever they were serving. Right? The question is rhetorical. They understood clearly what Paul was saying. The answer is of course. In the same way, verse 5 reminds us that not only were the servants needs to be provided for, but who else? Huh? His family. Right? Yet Paul and Barnabas did not take advantage of these rights. And now you would think that, you know, people would have responded positively to this. Usually when someone does a nice thing like that and they don't take that thing, that's, a, that's like a good thing. But you understand the culture with uh, the Corinth too. They frowned upon work. Whatever the case may be, they, they elevated those who would have maybe be in that position. But for whatever reason, they responded by thinking that because they didn't do these things, well then they must not have been a real true apostle. And then he gives three logical and clearly understood examples concerning rights or freedoms. And the first example is going to be that of a soldier. Does someone go to the military and have to provide for himself? It doesn't make a difference if you're in a free country like America or you're in a communist country. If you're a soldier, it's expected and it's practiced that the soldier's needs are, are met. This includes food, shelter, clothing, finances, whatever is needed. Right? Or what kind of soldier are they going to be? Everything that is needed to survive is provided for the soldier so they can be the best soldier that they can possibly be. Fully trained soldier. Huh? A fully trained soldier. Absolutely. The second example is going to be of a farmer, in particular someone who has a vineyard. Right? If one has a vineyard, it's understood with all the work that he's going to do that he's going to eat of his fruit. Right? 2 Timothy 2.6, the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Why? He did the work. This is capitalism, by the way. I had to get that one in there, sorry. Right? The third is the example of a shepherd. Right? A shepherd of flocks. Is it not assumed and understood that they will drink of the milk? It's their flocks. Right? So all these things are expected and because of that, some did not hold that Paul was a genuine apostle because he laid down these rights, including Barnabas who was associated with him and ministering with him. Then he appealed to the Old Testament law. And this is important too because remember, all these churches, before we had the New Testament, they were taught, they were taught they, when they got together and they worshipped God, they certainly elevated the apostles' teaching by word, but they were in the Scriptures. What were the Scriptures? The Old Testament, right? That was the Scriptures. So Paul's going to now appeal to the Old Testament law, which they weren't under, but is the Old Testament still for us? Absolutely, right? Yeah. 
He says, I'm not speaking these things according, uh, according to human judgment. Am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while, he's, while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the, te- from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So again, because it's the Old Testament, I need to remind you again of that wonderful scripture we all like to quote, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Right? And there, in that context, it was the Old Testament. So let's look at what the Old Testament is saying. It gave us some pretty good details of what Paul's trying to show. So the law says that, remember back then, we didn't have, they didn't have technology. They used animals to work. And the law says that when animals were used for work, it was expected to allow them to eat as well, especially those kind of animals. They're eating all the time, right? And they were, it was expected because they had to be taken care of. Proverbs 12.10, the righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. Take care of your animal. It's God's creature. You're using him to do the work. In the same way, the hard-working farmer is expected to enjoy the fruits of his labor. So the right thing is to pay the laborer for his work. He's worthy of his wages. And this is why he asked him the question of verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, their labor, right? Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Again, rhetorical question. The answer is obviously, of course not. Especially, verse 12, when others were reaping these benefits. It says, if others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, he's not saying that these aren't deserving of it, but that no one was more deserving of it or entitled to it than he and Barnabas because of the work that they did with this church in particular. And then he's going to give the example of the Levites, who had the responsibility of what? What was the Levites' responsibility out of all the tribes of Israel? The priestly. That means they did the work like, I mean, just like Pastor and Leonard here, right? All day, this is their job. To do the work, ministry. Everyone does ministry. You know what I mean, right? They had no inheritance. Remember, the Levites had no inheritance. Their inheritance was the Lord. They lived off their service. Verse 13 says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food 
of the temple. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So again, if you remember from Sunday evenings, the Levites lived off the offerings and sacrifice. I just said that. I got ahead of myself. So just as that was directed by the Lord, he said, so was what he's about to say in the next verse. Verse 14. So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So going back to the Levites for a moment, we know that their work was constant, right? Their work was constant. That was their whole life, right? So I want to let you just remind you for what this verse is not saying. This is not a verse that can be used to make a case that everyone who teaches and preaches on occasion says should be on payroll. The word for proclaim here in verse 14 is a verb that is a present active participle and it implies something that is constant. Pastor and Len are constantly doing the work of ministry. Right? So in other words, it's speaking of the minister who constantly proclaims the gospel week after week and because of it, they should make their living on it or they certainly have the right to. They certainly have the right to. So I think the main idea here is that the laborer, again, is worthy of his wages. And the principle was taught by the Lord, as we have already seen. Remember when the Lord sent out the twelve? We see a little bit of an illustration here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 10. says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. So our Lord is saying here that they are to go and do the work of God that He has equipped them to do. You're not going to lack anything because the work is not yours, but God's work. You receive this gift for free. Now therefore go and freely give it to others. Don't demand payment, but trust in the Lord that He will provide your every need. Verse 9, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. What is he saying here? Trust in God's provision and know that the worker is worthy of his wages. So application, well I think in this section it's safe to say that the application is for the church to recognize the work of the ministry of the word in their pastors and see to it that they are provided for reasonable compensation. The Bible Baptist does that, praise God. But this is important. And I think we can also say that the heart behind every servant of the Lord is that they would do it for free. And then thirdly, the priority of the greater. Paul says, but I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So the Paul had every right to receive support. He did not use it or take advantage of it. 
And he was not trying to make his argument for him to start now taking advantage of it. He had the higher calling of doing it first out of love for his Lord and second for the people who either are or were just like he was, lost and without any hope. And this higher calling was a matter of conviction. Verse 16 says, For I am under compulsion. That means he had an irresistible impulse to react to what was so freely, lovingly, and generously given to him, as we should. And if he thought that in any that that in any that if he thought that in any way using his rights would hinder this, he would gladly forfeit his rights for the sake of love, for the sake of bringing honor to the name of his Lord who saved him, for the sake of building up the brethren in the most holy faith. So for application here, maybe you are in a situation very similar to what we have been seeing in this section of Corinthians. Really more going back to chapter 8. Maybe even be the same situation, I don't know. The question you must ask yourselves, it's the same that I had to ask myself, continue to ask myself, and we should continue to ask ourselves until God calls us home, is what are you trying to accomplish? Or what is your goal in the things that you are doing? We're all doing stuff, right? But what are you actually trying to accomplish? Are you trying to win arguments? Is that your aim? Or is your aim to be right? <coughs> or is your aim to be used as the hands and feet of Christ working in and through you for His glory? Is it your aim to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Will it be your aim to do whatever is best for your weaker sibling, those whose very soul is one that Christ died for just like yours? You guys know that I love to quote Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Anthony, read Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is our great is our Amen. Amen. We need to remember that not only do these verses remind us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and a slate that is clean in Christ, But it reminds us of the great opportunity we have to now repent of our wickedness and live in a way that honors Him. That means we need to apply this to every detail of our lives. I don't know what everyone's going through. I know what I have to go through. Also, to live in a way that is worthy of this great salvation that He has freely given to us. And yet we know it wasn't free at all. It's the most costliest thing in the world. Right? The precious blood of the Lamb. So conclusion here, I'm just going to go back to the beginning. My general objective, love triumphs over freedom, over your liberties, over your entitlements. The specific objective, the good servant must be willing to forfeit his legitimate freedoms for the purpose of love. Loving God. Loving God. People, especially your brother and sister in Christ.
And again, go back to the thesis. You, me, be the example for people to follow. Don't rely on others. No, you be the example for people to follow. Imitate me as I imitate Christ should be what we should be able to say. And I don't remember where this phrase came from. It was my freshman year in high school. The quarterback and linebackers coach said this. I don't know where I heard it from. And I feel like it has, it sounds similar to a verse. I think Isaiah might have said it. I'm not sure. But it goes something like this. If it has to be, let it be me. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? You be the example. Is there an example that has to be made for people to follow? You be the example. Let me be the example. Don't be a coward and wait for someone else to do it. That's what it means to be a leader. Not not everyone's going to be the leader. God did not design it that way. But we should all be a leader in that sense. Be the first to step up to do the right thing. For Christ's sake. And that's it. That's the only motivation we need. Right? It's that time. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you so much for your wonderful, perfect, awesome word. We need it, Lord. It cleanses us. It's righteousness. It's love from our Father. It is the word of our Savior who is the word. Father, help us. Be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of Christ. Use us for your glory and nothing else. We thank you and praise you for that is enough. Let us come to that point that that is enough. It is enough because of who you are. So help us today. Be with us as Pastor John preaches both this morning and tonight, Lord God. And just help us to our week if you grant us it tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.